0: Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Armed with a PhD in plasma physics, Scott Pang was doing next-generation research on rockets for NASA before joining First Boston. He soon became highly engaged in the derivatives market, spending time as well at Lehman Brothers developing structured notes. We first consider some of the notable debacles in this product set, like Procter & Gamble in Orange County, outcomes that Scott sees as the result of shortfalls that end users had in understanding the risks they were ultimately taking on. Seeking to close this gap, Scott wrote a book, The Structured Note Market, a deep dive into the financial engineering that underpinned the creation of these products. We next turn to Scott's time at c Asset Management, running portfolio solutions and working with global pension plans on asset liability risk. Here, Scott shares his perspective on the recent blow-up in the long-dated gilt market, stating that in some ways this was an accident waiting to happen, given the mismatch in duration exposure required and that accessible through the cash gilt market. The balance of our discussion is spent on Scott's work as CIO of Advocate Capital, a firm he founded in 2016 to deliver risk mitigation solutions to investors. Part of this product suite is the RRH ETF, a vehicle designed to protect investors from rising rates through a combination of exposures that serve as cost-effective proxies for being short duration. Scott shares his framework for implementing a multi-asset set of strategies that profit when interest rates rise. With Scott's view that inflation will prove sticky and that the terminal funds rate will end higher than currently priced by the market, investors need to be thoughtful around portfolio exposures like RRH that may cushion the blow of higher rates. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with Scott Pang. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Scott Pang. He is the founder and CIO of Advocate Capital Management, a firm offering risk management solutions to investors and doing some innovative work in the ETF space as well. Scott, great to have you on the podcast today.
1: Dean, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation. I have been following the RRH ETF and just looking a little bit at just how you think about helping clients defend against this unbelievable rise in rates that we've seen over the past year. It certainly wrecked havoc on The 60-40 portfolio and sort of finding that right offset has been critical. So we'll, we'll certainly talk about the work that you and your firm are doing in the ETF space. So let's get our conversation underway. Let's learn a little bit about you and your background. You've got a PhD, so you've been at this for a while and deep in the weeds of both theory and practice. But tell us about how you got your start on Wall Street.
1: Sure. I got my PhD from MIT in plasma physics, which is obviously not finance. I was actually doing research on next generation rockets for NASA and the Air Force. And out of school, I joined First Boston, where we created and traded structured notes. And I did that at First Boston Corp, as it was known back then, as well as Lehman. And with that experience, I wrote the first industry book on the structured note market. So that was that was kind of fun. After that, I joined BlackRock as head of derivative trading. I traded swaps and derivatives for BlackRock's mutual fund and hedge fund. And I went to a firm called Oak Hill Platinum Partners, which was basically the long-term capital guys. This was the academic side of the former long-term capital partners. So I was the lead U.S. portfolio manager at Oak Hill's hedge fund and also Myron Schultz's chauffeur. If you don't know, Myron Scholes is the shoals of the Black Shoals fame, so that was my claim to fame. I then joined Citigroup and became head of US rate strategy. And during the global financial crisis, I wrote an article called, Is LIBOR Broken? That eventually resulted in a replacement of LIBOR as the floating rate benchmark. At CCOR, I was the head of Portfolio Solutions, where we worked with CCOR's clients. To help them use derivatives to manage their asset and liability risk, and I founded Advocate Capital about six years ago with an ex-BlackRock colleague to, as you said, to provide asset and risk management and services to clients via ETFs and separate accounts.
0: That was a very efficient run through a very accomplished couple of decades in the market. <laughs> so well done. I remember Oak Hill Platinum quite well and did a lot of variant swaps with with John Wang and knew Chifu Wang quite well. In fact, I, I believe the office was not far from where I live. I live in Rye, so I think these they were in Rye Brook, so not not too far from where I live. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the structured notes book. I always admire authors. I've had a number of authors on the podcast just because I think it's just really interesting to see someone dive in. Now, most of the authors have been in finance but not treating more from an academic standpoint a financial product. But as I listen to your background and I think about the structured notes market back in that period, there were some pretty interesting blowups, of course. There was Gibson Greetings. There was Orange County, Robert Citron, which was a famous one. So tell us about your decision to write that book and give us a little bit more background on, on the book itself in terms of the what you focused on there.
1: Sure. When I was at First Boston Lehman, we created and traded structured notes. And structured notes, for those who don't know, are basically notes issued generally by U.S. agencies like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. And they had derivatives included in them so that it could help clients express whatever view they want. If a client said, I think S&P is going to go up by 200 points in the next month, you can create a structured note for that. So we created and traded structured notes, and after a while came to my attention that a lot of people didn't really know what the risk of these instruments really was. You know the risk of a five-year note if you just bought a five-year treasury, but certainly structured notes, because of the fact they had derivatives embedded in them, had very different risk characteristics, and many people who purchased these notes really did not understand it. So that was really the motivation for me to write the book which is to help create a better understanding of the risk of these structures on the part of investors. Because I always felt that a better informed investor would help grow the market and would be more informed in terms of the types of structure notes they would buy. So that was really my motivation to write this book, which is to help educate the market.
0: So there's a large industry out there that is some version of packaging a fixed income cash flow stream with some optionality especially in the post GFC period where there was so little interest to utilize for optionality it turns out that the optionality really became a sale where the you know the end investor was essentially bearing short vol risk as a way of generating some sort of coupon income and it was really just a a sale of premium and and it kind of looked like a bond but it really wasn't a bond in the traditional fixed coupon and you get your money back at the end. And there's a lot of criticism of of structured notes just in terms of their, maybe their illiquidity, their lack of transparency, and then maybe also that the end investor doesn't get a good deal, right? And so that that happens occasionally, but you saw that market for a long period of time. And I was curious if you could share with us or just reflect back on certain structures or products that you looked at it and you said you know I, I like this packaging this is a this is a smart way of gaining a specific kind of exposure whether it was via vol or some correlation pricing in the market were there any structures that you thought oh that's really actually a clever way of delivering some end exposure to the to the ultimate buyer
1: yeah, I mean, you know, I have to hark to my own experience. I think one of the first structure notes I created was a 10 year note, which was a floored LIBOR floater for the first five years and was capped for the last five years. And the reason for that is that the client said, well, I think rates are going to stay static or fall for the next five years and is going to potentially rise a little bit in the ensuing five years. So we put a floor in there to give them some protection against falling rates. And then for the following five years, since you didn't think rates were going to rise very much, we had basically a sold cap embedded in there. So I think the best structure are really the ones that, you know, listen to what the client wanted without putting in undue leverage. I mean, I think about, you know, the Procter & Gamble example, where like 100x leverage was packaged into a two-year swap and ended up obviously very poorly for Procter & Gamble, who ended up suing Bankers Trust for $200 million. So... You know, anytime you put in a massive amount of leverage into anything, it generally doesn't tend to end well.
0: <laughs> right. The Citron blowup was a fascinating one. I mean, for for many reasons, and obviously quite unfortunate. Anytime a public entity, especially, loses that amount of money and that the taxpayers have to bear the burden of the the poor decision making, it it's a big deal. But I remember studying that particular blowup and just the amount of duration risk that he had packaged in a, I think they were five years to maturity, but because they had this, you'll get it better than I would, but I guess it was a leveraged inverse floater, right? Betting that short rates would stay low and it was squared. <laughs> so these coupons became very negative in a very short period of time. That was a pretty fascinating period. And I think, as you, note, you know, whenever there's leverage involved, that's where ultimately you can get these, these sort of tail outcomes. How about this? I'd just be curious to get your thoughts on this. You know, in the equity derivatives business, which I've been in for quite a period of time, the structured business tends to originate a lot of, out of Asia, a lot out of Europe. There's much more of an appetite from the, I don't want to call them retail, but let's call them the high net worth community, it tends to be built around consumption of these pretty complicated, pretty long dated structured products. And a lot of them have the end-user selling vol, selling correlation. And the books, the Wall Street books, tend to get very, very big with certain types of complex exposure. Some of them are dividends. Some of them are long-dated vol, sometimes long-dated correlation. And there's this entire risk recycling business. Sometimes they're repackaged into things like variant swaps that wind up in the hands of hedge funds, correlation swaps, and so forth. I'm wondering, is there an equivalent of that or was there an equivalent of that in terms of the structured note business on the rate side? Are there exposures that banks wind up getting either long or short that they then have a natural and strong bid for in terms of risk mitigation, covering off risks that they might like to have, but they got so big in them? How does that kind of ecosystem of long and short, complex exposures tend to clear the market on the rate side.
1: The issuers generally swap out of it immediately because all they want is cheap funding. So they would not be retaining the risk on their books at all. So if city issues like equity link note on the backside, they'd be fully hedged out. So they would not be hedging out later.
0: Right. So if they wind up with some sort of vol risk, some sort of correlation risk, and I was specifically interested more on the the rate derivative side because in the equity derivative side, a long dated, let's say, reverse clique, which is a common retail product, you know, that's the sort of thing that can get repackaged into whether it's correlation swaps, variance swaps, that hedge funds might step in and be the other side of. You know, so the banks like the risk. They like the price that they either sold vol at or bought it at, but they get so big in it that they want to see it offset somewhere and oftentimes they're using hedge funds to do that. And I was curious, is there a similar sort of risk recycling process that happens on the rate side?
1: I think on the rate side, pretty much all the structures that I've seen and been involved with are almost hedged out immediately because you know swaptions can go out to 10, 30 years so it's not like an equity space where once you get past two years, then you know the leaps market really sort of dies off right so in, in equity space They actually want to keep that risk, as you said, for specific purposes. But on the fixed income side, they can get rid of that risk pretty easily, pretty far out. I think the only exception would be things like variant swaps, where they sort of have to delta hedge it.
0: Right, right. Okay. Yeah, no, I just was trying to draw some corollaries between the complex equity derivative market and maybe some of what trades on the rate side. So let's walk through a little bit about your time at Secor, running the Portfolio Solutions Group. I'd love to learn a little bit more about that time there and, and the types of interactions you had with Secor's with end clients. As I think back, it's an insanely low rate period, <laughs> negative rate period in some cases. So that presented a very unique set of challenges, I would say, for long-dated liability management. But walk us through what that effort was, and then maybe we can talk a little bit more about some specifics in terms of the client interaction and solutions.
1: So when I was at Secor, we worked with global pension plans, which was one of the key clients, in terms of thinking about asset liability risk and asset liability management. And one type of client we worked with was UK and European pensions. And those in the market would know that recently UK pension plans had some great difficulty after the new budget that was released by the UK government a couple of months ago. They had rates spiking up in very short order, and that put UK pensions in a world of hurt. And the reason is that a lot of UK pension plans tended to use the derivative market to hedge out their asset liability risk. And it's really for a very good reason. And the reason is that the UK bond market, the gilt market, is not that big. You know, you're talking literally about five, six hundred billion of long dated gilts versus a UK pension market that's like two or three trillion in size. So they really couldn't source sufficient amounts of duration from the gilt market. And so they almost had to go to the derivative market. But that creates a problem because, as you know, if you're doing these OTC derivatives, you're not actually spending the money. You're putting up only a small amount and you are exposed the mark to market of the hedges of these long dated swaps. What pension plans did with the rest of the money was they invested in assets typically you know, some in the public market, but some in the private market, that aren't super liquid. And even their public market investments, where they give it to an investment manager to manage, they can't source liquidity outside of, say, a monthly cycle. So when interest rates rose very rapidly over the course of a few days, a lot of these pension plans got caught offside. They couldn't generate sufficient liquidity, and the mark to market on these swaps quickly blew through whatever cash margins that they had. And so they were on the edge of having to liquidate these hedges because they couldn't hang on to it anymore. And that was when the Bank of England had to step in. So that was a very interesting experience because a few years ago when I was working with them, you, know, you could sort of potentially see this coming. And it didn't happen for a long time because we were in a four-decade-long de- bond bull market where interest rates dropped. So when interest rates were dropping, these long-dated receive swap positions did great. They made lots of money, and pension plans could take this money and invest it in different assets. But in the last couple of years, when rates rebounded, that is really when the rubber meets the road, and the tide is receding, and you really see who is swimming without pants. And a lot of these pension plans didn't have sufficient amounts of cash buffers. So... It was a very interesting situation that really came about because the UK pension universe was restructured about, let's say, 10, 15 years ago when the UK regulators forced UK pension plans to really have to tighten up the asset liability risk. We didn't have that tight a risk constraint in the US, so US pension plans don't have as much problems as UK pension plans.
0: The first thing you said, and I've read about this elsewhere, is just that you had a market sizing issue, that the necessary duration exposure was just not available through the cash market. And so that's really interesting. And I don't know if that is a regulatory, I don't want to say failing, but it's something where, as you say, there's only a, one other way to get it, which is through some manufactured duration, which involves some form of leverage through the swap market. As that problem was materializing, where the needs for duration exposure outstrip the supply of it via the cash market. Was that a conversation amongst people like you who were looking at these types of trades? Was that a conversation amongst people in the seats at these pension funds that, hey, this is a risk that we're taking on at that point?
1: I think it's pretty obvious to most participants that this was a risk. And again, when rates were just monotonically dropping, everyone was making money hand over fist on these swaps and things were great. And, you know, these concerns kind of got put on the back burner. And again, it wasn't really until two years ago when rates hit all-time lows and started rising that this really bubbled to the surface. So you can say this is a problem sort of four decades in the making, if you will.
0: And the other part of it is that anytime we use leverage, any, any product that has leverage, as we think about our exposures, we have to use some vol metric. Typically, we're looking backwards we think that backward looking volatility is, at least is somewhat informative about the future never perfect for sure but as we size these trades we've got to use some vol assumption to size them and that's what's going to get us our value at risk whatever you want to call it and so i'm i'm just wondering just in terms of the way in which these trades were sized and the vol assumption that came in because obviously there was a spark that was there was this budget that was very poorly received by the marketplace. And so realized volatility just outstripped the market's ability to bear the mark to market, so to speak. What about that part? As you look at the kind of vol assumptions that were being made around worst case, call it three standard deviation type moves. Was that a part of the failing here? Were they lulled to sleep by not just low rates, but the low vol of rates that persisted for years?
1: Yeah, I think the three sigma is not a bad measure. The real question is the sigma, right? And how far back you take that sigma. And in the gilt market, and even in the U.S. bond market, we are seeing some of the highest volatility and drawdowns in both markets that you know we have seen in more than two decades. So for example, in the U.S. bond market, if you look at the Barclays Ag, in the last 12 months, we had the largest 12-month drawdown since the 1980s, right? So. Most risk metrics go back three, five, you know, 10 years if you're lucky, and you don't capture that type of large systemic movements in the underlying rate. And I think that was ultimately what upset these hedgers. Their liquidity buffer was simply insufficient to address the large movement in interest rates.
0: You mentioned Myron Scholes, and obviously a, a pioneer in option pricing and was also a partner at Long Term Capital, you know, a firm that famously, in some ways, got caught up in their own presence in the market, the fact that their own trades could be so impactful in terms of driving volatility. Is that a situation that, or is is there some application of that concept that sort of, that the trades in the market really matter, the presence of investors and exposures really matters? Is that part of this Nasty unwind as well, just that the positioning was so one way and that everybody had to do the same thing at the same time?
1: Yeah, I think if it's too big for the market and too big, by too big, I would say if you're 20, 30% of the market by yourself, that should raise red flags all over the place because if you try to move, then the pack is going to move ahead of you. And that was what happened with long term. When long term tried to cut a position when they ran in trouble in 1998, the street basically front random and move the market to the point where they couldn't unwind. And so that is always a risk issue that I keep in mind is that if you're too big for the market, then you probably shouldn't be in it. And that's, I think, a key risk constraint that, you know, we would all do well to keep in mind.
0: Well, let's let's fast forward and let's talk about your work at, at Advocate Capital. So first, give us an overview of what you're focused on in terms of the product that you're delivering, the genesis of creating the firm. And then, you know, I'd love to just dive into the here and now of what you're seeing in the world of risk pricing and the economy. But first, tell us a little bit about the founding idea behind Advocate.
1: Sure. The idea behind Advocate really started when I was at BlackRock. I was trading derivatives. And during the long-term capital crisis, Obviously, many fixed income relative value strategies were hurt very badly, but there were some strategies that actually did very well. And that was really the spark in my mind, which was that, you know, can you pull together a set of disparate strategies that really kick in at the same time? And that, that was the genesis behind advocate which is to use a multi-asset, multi-strat portfolio to help manage risk. And we started running that concept for large institutional clients starting in 2012 when I was at Secor to help clients hedge, back then, uh, macro risk. So we put together a portfolio of various assets, various strategies that we believe would kick in when adverse time hits. And that, really, that was the genesis idea behind Advocate. And so I left Secor about six years ago with a fellow ex-BlackRocker to found a firm based around that concept.
0: Well, maybe we could just use the VIX as some proxy for risk. And I like to think about the way in which other assets interact with the VIX, whether it's credit spreads, there are certain FX pairs that tend to be more VIX-like, You know, carry currencies like the Aussie dollar. And then there are some, some assets that behave like the VIX for a period of time and then cease behaving like the VIX. One of my favorites is if you go back to late 2011, maybe it's early 2012, Italian BTPs are about as VIX-like as you can get. You know The risk off is, is in the potential contagion from the euro to Italian banks. And then Draghi comes in and you know, is able to put enough Band-Aids on there to, I don't want to say fix the problem, but it kind of went away financially. And so by mid-2015 or so, BTPs have really no relationship with the VIX. So there is some sense of the VIX quality can kind of come and go. I just was hoping you could just talk to us a little bit more about your framework in terms of how you think about risk mitigation, the sort of tools that you use to identify candidates that'll be efficient, sort of sources of insurance for portfolios. Talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Sure, I think there's a few sort of takeaways from you know my having been in industry for over 30 years. One of which is that you, know, you really can't get a good crisis going without bringing liquidity and greed slash fraud into play. And pretty much, pretty much all the large crises you and I have seen in the last 20, 30 years really fall in that category. Whether you talk about SNL crisis or the Mexican peso crisis or LTCM or global financial crisis, pretty much a mix of all those attributes come into play. That's one of the takeaways. Another one is that bond and currency markets tend to be a bit ahead of equity markets in identifying trouble spots. You think about 2007, in the summer of 2007, these asset-backed commercial paper programs were running into trouble, and bank funding costs were starting to rise. But equities kept rising and hit a peak in October of 2007. But by the same token, bond and currency markets can overreact. There's a good saying in the market that bonds have predicted 10 of the last seven recessions. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Another thing that I've learned is that different assets and strategies can react in similar ways to market conditions, but may offer better value, and that's really the foundation of our multi-asset, multi-strat approach. You talked about BTPs. Another example in that vein would be dollar-yen. Right? Dollar-yen, for a big chunk of this year, was a really good proxy for rising rates, but then the Bank of Japan intervened, and that kind of has gone away. The fundamentals behind that have been materially altered. And so what you see is that you know, certain strategies work well, but what really has been evolving in the market is regulation. The regulatory environment was less and less in the 90s and 00s, and more and more post-global financial crisis. And regulations change the nature of strategies and markets. So if you look at the fixed income market, right now fixed income markets are much, much less liquid in terms of products such as treasuries or swaps versus pre-global financial crisis days or even 20 years ago. And that's obviously because of the post-GFC regulations such as Basel 3 or Dodd-Frank. So you protected the banks, but now the markets are more fragile. So that's kind of the environment that we're in. And trading multi-strat, multi-asset portfolios, you have to be cognizant of potential regulatory impacts on your strategies.
0: It's so interesting to sort of think about this Black-Scholes equation, which is a offshoot of a physics equation. And sometimes it, it sort of seduces you into this notion that markets resemble the physical sciences. But we know that... Everything matters. The, the back history matters. So when you talk about the GFC and the regulatory response to it, as you as you note, it was to alter the liquidity provision in treasuries pretty significantly, maybe make them safer in one way, but to make them less liquid at a time when they've gotten larger and larger and larger. And so that's an interesting consideration. I was hoping to use that to just have you reflect on... The pandemic chaos, the market chaos from the pandemic, and there was a lot of it. The VIX got to eighty-three, but the treasury market was, in some ways, the most interesting and terrifying part of that crisis. You know, there were just some absolutely gigantic moves. There was a stocks down, rates higher, basically some sort of taper tantrum crash of of illiquidity that occurred for five days or so in, in mid March of twenty twenty. I'd love for you to reflect on that period just in terms of your, you know, how you think about market prices. I'm sure Treasury Vol had g- gone through the roof at that point in time. Talk to us about what was on your mind as that period was unfolding, just in terms of someone that looks at the price of risk all day long.
1: So I'll address that first and then we can talk about the pandemic because I think it's pretty interesting in terms of the impact of the pandemic as well. But when you run into a situation like March of 2000, which actually reminded me of another period back in time in 2007, August of 2007. I don't know if you remember, but that was when global macro funds had their meltdown. It was very localized, but you had certain large global macro funds lose like 30% in a month. And that is basically a vanishing of liquidity. And the vanishing of liquidity, as I said before, is even more likely to happen nowadays with banks having their balance sheet and capital much more constrained than before, and the treasury market and fixed income market growing by leaps and bounds. The tradable treasury market was $5 trillion at the end of 2008. It's over $13 trillion now. So you can certainly think about how many times that's grown, while at the same time, the balance sheet of broker-dealers has shrunken significantly. So. Who's going to be on the other side? Well, you have mutual funds and ETFs having grown in size considerably. But what if investors want out? You know, you can run into a situation where you can have air pockets, large air pockets grow in these very liquid markets such as treasuries. And that's what you see in times like March 2020. So it's something that, you know, you kind of watch, but it's sort of a problem of our own making because we've stripped out so much of the ability of dealers and counterparties to make markets during crisis time. So why should it be any wonder that you have liquidity air gaps?
0: One of the things that came out of the March of 2020, at least from the the Treasury market side, was the blow up of the basis. And at least it's my understanding, I'm not an expert on that by any stretch, but there were large concentrations of these basis type Treasury positions that when the Vol explodes, they just become, you know, untenable just in terms of in terms of the risk reward. And i just remember there was one piece of research that came after the LTCM unwind. And it was interesting, Scott. It basically showed that the more correlated two assets are, so think the LTCM 29 and a half year treasury versus 30-year treasury. Essentially the the larger the position is going to be in order to try to eke out some incremental carry. And then from a distributional standpoint, the fatter the tail, right? Because the sizing is so significant that if you do get an unwind, it almost definitionally means that maybe the correlation of the long and short asset went from 0.99 to 0.85 or something like that, which is still high, but a huge deal. <laughs> so when you looked at the basis trades from that period in, in March of 2020, what did you see, it's just in terms of that dislocation?
1: I think it's, again, another example of the demand for liquidity. You, know, you can basically, again, summarize any of these crisis-driven events as a demand for liquidity in various forms. And basis trades flare up every now and then because you have many non-U.S. borrowers trying to access the synthetic U.S. funding market through these basis trades to fund their purchase of U.S. assets. And obviously, U.S. assets are quite attractive. There are many different types of assets global investors can buy, but they need to fund it. And so you know, anytime you have a liquidity squeeze, the basis just blows out and it's very hard to find the other side.
0: We talked a little bit about the crisis in the markets from the pandemic, but talk us through your rendering of the pandemic itself, just in terms of the economic impact. I know you've done a lot of thinking and writing on the inflation impact as well. So talk to us about the aftermath of the pandemic and sort of its, its ongoing impact on the economy and inflation?
1: Sure. I think you can think of the pandemic as a play in two acts. So the first act is the core goods inflation, where the economy shut down, the global central banks pumped in massive amounts of liquidity and also extended un- unemployment benefits. So when the economy started up again, you had that stimulus, plus pent-up consumption, plus everyone's boost up their savings, so they are willing to spend money. And then we also have supply, supply shock and supply chain snafus. So that created the highest inflation since 1983. And inflation during that period of time was really driven by core goods. And that's very unusual. Since 1960, core service has led inflation 93% of the time. So only 7% of the time has any inflation bout been led by core goods. So now everyone's talking about supply chain snap being resolved, curtain, and you know, is it all good now? And you know, my answer is no, because the curtain is about to rise on Act Two. And Act Two is the era of core service inflation. So core service, starting with the August print, started overtaking core goods as a leading driver of core inflation. Core service is gonna be a lot harder for the Fed to get its arms around because one of the big contributors to core service is labor cost. And the pandemic fundamentally changed the labor market. We had the labor force participation rate pre-pandemic of 63.4. It dropped to 60.5 and has really struggled to make its way back. It is currently in the low 62% range for all of 2022. Now you go 63.4, 62.2, eh, not much difference. Well, that actually accounts for 3 million less workers in the labor force right now. And that is why the labor market is so tight and why the Fed at almost every meeting, every comment talks about how tight the labor market is, because we now have 3 million less workers. So this becomes, again, another part of the problem the Fed has to resolve, which is that not only do you have to reckon with the very tight labor market, but it's another supply shock. And a supply shock driven inflation bout is very different from what the Fed has had to deal with in the last 40 years. Last 40 years, every bout of inflation has been driven by demand shock, where you have more consumption. You have to go back to the 1970s to find a real good supply shock driven inflation bout, which is the Arab oil embargo followed by the Iran oil issues. So supply shock is very difficult for the Fed and, or any central bank to control because they can only control indirectly by clamping down on demand. Right. Eventually, they drop demand so much that supply demand come into balance. So this is why we think that the Fed really has to raise rates a lot more than they have in the past. And we think that if you look back at longer term history, the Fed funds rate has exceeded core CPI by about two and a half percent up until the global financial crisis. So core CPI right now is five percent. Even if the Fed drops it to four percent. That is really compatible with a target Fed funds rate that's higher than six percent. And that's really what we think the Fed has to do to hike rates to bring inflation under control.
0: It's very easy to be an armchair quarterback on the Fed. There's a lot of Fed critics. I'm probably one of them. <laughs> but you know, I, I look back on that period post-GFC and and obviously the scars from that financial firefight were gonna be long lasting. Anytime there seemed to be a bout of risk-off where maybe long-dated break-evens started to fall. You sort of get a PTSD, I think, as a central banker that, OK, is this about to happen again? And there is emergency QE, which the Fed did in 2008. And the Bank of England, as you talked about, in some ways, just did a month ago or so. And then there's post-crisis QE, where the Fed is buying bonds for years and years after the the heart of the financial crisis. it's buying bonds when GDP is two plus percent, you know inflation is maybe 40 or 50 basis points below target. It just seemed like it lasted longer than it should have. And I'm just I'm wondering just in terms of as you think about the, the central bank's kind of reaction function these days in terms of w- where you see them going, how can you put this in context for us just to, in terms of what you expect the Fed to do?
1: Well, I think I don't blame the Fed for everything, as a lot of people might do. I think the pandemic really sped up what would have happened over the long period of time. For example, the drop in the labor force participation rate. A lot of the drop came from baby boomers who were still working, even as they approached the retirement age, and the pandemic really sped up their retirement decision. So I think the the pandemic really accelerated the built-in inflation impulse that the Fed would have had a lot more time, a lot more years to deal with. So I don't really blame the Fed for for all this. But on the other hand, now that we have inflation, and now that we have still global shutdowns, we still have China with their zero-COVID policy, and China, frankly, is going to be exporting inflation rather than exporting deflation, given where it is in its economic development. I think the forces and the winds are really starting to blow behind higher inflation versus what it was in the past four decades. We had a really the perfect storm for lower rates in the past four decades. Now we have the perfect storm for higher rates. We have inflation, we have labor market, we also, by the way, have central banks selling bonds, which is not a minor thing. We're talking about trillions in the case of the Fed. So all these winds are now starting to, to push together to create the perfect storm for higher rates. And, I really think that the Fed is is not entirely to blame for all this.
0: So you're painting a, a unique picture here where, as you say, the expectation that rates were going to be close to zero, certainly policy rates, remained so close to zero for so long. Long-dated rates obviously got to exceptionally low levels as well. And so you're painting a very, very different picture, not just now, but in the period that is approaching. So tell us just in terms of the risk management strategy, the solutions, the conversations that you have with clients of, of Advocate Capital, what does that look like now in, in the context of what is a unique interest rate environment?
1: Well, I think we also found out something about the bond market in 2022, which obviously we touched on one of them, which is high risk. We've seen the highest bond volatility and worst rolling 12 months performance by the ag since the 1980s. What we have also seen is a rising correlation between equities and bonds and also across asset classes. And that's something which I think a lot of people are starting to be more concerned about. Equity bond correlation, if you take S&P 500 versus the, bar, uh, the Bloomberg Ag, was negative 0.4 in 2019, is plus 0. 0.7 in the last 12 months. And that's something that the market really hasn't got a good feel for. You know, We're all used to negative equity bond correlation post-2000, and that was in a low inflation environment. But keep in mind that pre-2000 equity bond correlation was positive for over two decades. So in our view, in a high inflation, and high interest rate environment, positive equity bond correlation is likely to be the new normal. And what does that mean? That means that investors who have multi-asset portfolios or equity bond portfolios are going to see much higher risk than they have been used to or accustomed to using data over the last 20 years. And that's that, I think, is a real danger to investors, that their portfolios all of a sudden has become riskier than they had thought. So certainly, we think investors should reconsider their asset allocation assumptions given both higher asset volatility as well as higher correlation across different asset classes.
0: In the world of equities, the goal, at least for the hedger side of things, is to try to find that most efficient hedge. The S&P would be the hedge of choice, just given its transparency, the depth of the market, and the liquidity of the market. But oftentimes, in almost by definition, that makes it the most expensive (laughs) because it's so obvious. So there's this search for proxy hedges. It leads people to look at VIX call strategies. Again, sometimes people will look at other indices. They might even travel further afoot to things like gold or even FX, as we talked about certain pairs. In rates, people were very frustrated in 2021. You could have gotten the inflation idea right, but you got it wrong on the rate side if you were using things like payer swaptions, right? There was just no reaction, at least before 2022, there was very little reaction of the bond market to what was rising inflation. So talk to us about your approach to proxy hedging. Maybe this is a good time to introduce your rising rate hedge ETF, because I know it uses kind of some of that concept. So walk us through how you think about, you know, let's call it hedging against higher rates and, and the mix of instruments that you'll look to to accomplish that?
1: Sure. When we started thinking about our rising rate hedge ETF, we looked at the market and pretty much all the products that's out there are either shorting bonds directly or there are long options to effectively short bonds. And we thought that they might be a better way or a different way in terms of addressing the rising rate hedge product. I worked as a hedge fund and neutral fund portfolio manager, and I've worked with multi-strat portfolios pretty much all my life. And we thought that it was time to bring our multi-asset, multi-strat approach to the rising rate world. We've been applying it to help institutional clients manage risk for about 10 years, and we thought it was time to bring it to the ETF world. And the advantage in our perspective of adopting a multi-asset, multi-strat approach is at least twofold. One is that it allows you to monetize strategies that do well and then rotate your risk allocation to other strategies that are still cheap uh, without losing your exposure to a rising rate environment. Versus if you're just short bonds, well, if you take money off the table, you're less short bonds. So you've reduced your exposure. Another advantage of a multi-strat portfolio is allows us to position and reposition our portfolio as market conditions change. So if Bank of Japan intervenes, we take off our dollar-yen FX position, as we did earlier this year, and we can rotate that risk to other strategies that aren't as affected. So it gives us a lot more flexibility and a lot more design flexibility in terms of creating this product. And that was really what was very attractive to us. I think another, another attractiveness of this product in retrospect is this correlation shift we talked about, because in this positive equity bond correlation environment, neutral and negatively correlated investments we think will be very useful to helping investors reduce this higher portfolio risk that they'll start seeing.
0: So talk a little bit more specifically about, I guess we'll use the word duration that risk exposure, what are the proxies? What is the universe of proxies that you see is applicable to this product?
1: Well, what we look for, we have three different asset suites, if you will. One is a fixed income correlation suite, one is an equity correlation suite, and one is a currency correlation suite. And all of these strategies, we look for strategies that perform well, we would think should perform well in a rising rate environment. So, for example, we talked about dollar-yen. Dollar-yen was a big allocation in the H portfolio for most of this past year because of its unique characteristics. If U.S. rates rise but Japanese rates don't because Bank of Japan is still easing massively. The rate differential widens. It creates capital flows across out of Japan into the US that causes the dollar to appreciate. So that was one of the currency correlation strategies that we have. In equity correlation space, we look for sectors that we think should perform well in a high inflation, high rate environment. Currently, we have investments into the energy sector via the ETF. And we also have investment in the healthcare sector, both of which we think will do well if inflation continues to remain high. So we look for investments across multiple asset classes that we think will complement each other in a rising rate environment. And when rates kind of stop rising or start to drop, we hope that they will start to trade on their own merits. So that's really why we think a multi-asset, multi-strat portfolio should do better than an outright short bond portfolio over long periods of time.
0: So let, let's dive into the, the yen exposure, because I think that's a good example of a great proxy trade, one that has really caught the rise in rates, as you said, set against the BOJ stuck at yield curve control, at least trying to stay stuck on it. So far, I guess, successful. But as trades work, the sponsorship for them gets bigger and bigger. You know, the CTA long positioning in the dollar was overwhelmingly large. And so I guess it took CPI day, I think it was November 10th, for there to be a pretty significant flush out in that long dollar exposure. And you had everything rip against the dollar. And so I was hoping you could share with us just in terms of the tactical aspect of this. If you see a proxy trade that's working but almost working too well. And you maybe see a set of exposures, perhaps it's CFTC data that tells you, hey, I'm in this trade along with everybody else. Does that give you some pause? I'm just curious about how tactical you are around the positioning.
1: I would say we are not super tactical. We certainly are cognizant of overcrowded positions, but our perspective is a scale-in, scale-out perspective. So we're not going to hold, for example, a dollar-yen. We didn't hold everything until 145 and then sold it. We were liquidating, we put it on in the one-teens and we started liquidating it above 130 because that was our liquidation target. So for each of the strategies that we have there's a certain point, so a starting point for liquidation and there's a certain point when we want to be 100% out. So the dollar yen strategy was one such where we started liquidating and we exited our entire position before the Bank of Japan intervened. So we, for every strategy that we have, there's always an entry and exit target and there's never a full-on, full-out type of situation. So, and you're right, as yen kept depreciating more and more people piled into that trade, that was when we started getting out.
0: So yen is a proxy to U.S. rates uh, pretty tight in terms of its behavior relative to the path of U.S. rates. You mentioned certain equity exposures the energy sector. So my question is just around the degree of tightness of the proxy in terms of its correlation. Some proxies are tighter than others. So equities would seem a little further afoot. How do you kind of blend in the very tight proxies to ones that are a little further away from, from home base?
1: Yeah, for us, the ones that are further away, the ones with lower correlation, we tend to size less. The ones with higher correlation, we would size more because of our higher certainty of its functionality. So we have tight caps in terms of our equity exposure, because in general, equities tend to be less correlated to rising rates than currencies or fixed income sectors. So we use that correlation as a guide in terms of how we size the trades.
0: And tell us about the just launching the ETF in terms of the idea of bringing that to the market and just the experience of of now being an ETF manager, I'd love to learn about just what you've experienced over the last couple of years running this product, where you want to take it, anything you can share with
1: us on that front? Sure. It's certainly been a very interesting 12 months. RH recently passed its one-year anniversary, and it's obviously been a very challenging time. If you look in the past 12 months, only about 5 or 6% of actively managed U.S. ETFs posted positive returns in the past year. And so for us, you know, our past one year and year to date performance of up in the mid 30% range, which puts in the top five or six out of about a thousand active US ETFs. We're pretty happy with that. But we're also happy with the fact that our multi-strat multi-asset concept worked out well in a period of high volatility. And that's something that we're very proud of and very happy with. We think it's a good time to have this product out there. We, as I said before... Given the high positive correlation across asset classes, we think neutral and negatively correlated investments will be in demand for the next few years as investors try to restore some diversification. And if you look at the past year, when you run analysis of small allocations to RRH from equity, bond, and 60-40 portfolios, even a small allocation to RRH, like 10 or 20%, could have reduced portfolio risk by as much as a quarter to a third over the past 12 months. And that's really gratifying to us because you know, we want investors to look at RH not just in terms of generating positive returns, but also for portfolio applications. So it's been a very interesting time. It's been highly stressful at certain times, but you know, we've been pretty happy about the product. So we're very happy about its reception. And what we want to do going forward is really to help spread the word about RH's portfolio benefit and you know to potentially work on applying our multi-asset, multi-strat approach to other risk arenas. So stay tuned.
0: You make a great point there. And just in terms of, it's amazing that you're up 30%. That's a great accomplishment. I think the more important part is investors are challenged more than ever to put a portfolio together where the co-movement of the elements of the portfolio is not so significant. And- the leaning into that negative stock bond correlation for years and years became you know, a real crutch. And uh, maybe that'll come back at some point in time, but I think you also make the point that when inflation is on the higher side, the correlation tends to be muted and in some cases positive. So there's nothing obvious to argue that you're suddenly gonna go back into this strong risk on, risk off environment. One of the things I also wanted to ask you, Scott, was just around the yield curve you now I'm thinking back, and you'll remember it much better than I do, but the the greenspan conundrum right where he <laughs> he he, yep. he tightened by four hundred basis points and the long bond went up maybe twenty five basis points or the ten year went up twenty five basis points in yield and I think it's twos tens or minus seventy five right now. You can argue that if the forwards are realized. I think you get to a 5% policy rate by May of next year. So if the 10-year doesn't move, you'll have 125 basis points of inversion, at least between you know the policy rate and the 10-year. So first question is just in terms of RRH, the rising rate hedge ETF, is there a rate that you're kind of benchmarked to in terms of where you're trying to most closely mimic just given how funky the yield curve movements can be?
1: We tend to look at the 10-year part of the curve. And again, this is sort of where the conundrum comes in, right? When Chairman Greenspan talked about conundrum, I think part of it was out of frustration because the Fed is hiking rates and the 10-year rate just keeps on dropping. And he's like, what's going on? Why is it doing this? And it's happening now. And I think it works against the Fed because Not all of our economy runs on short rates. A big chunk of the economy is dependent on intermediate and long-term rates. For example, 30-year mortgages is based on 10-year part of the curve. So when Fed hikes a lot and the 10-year treasury yield stays put or drops, that's actually adding more liquidity back into the market. And it really means I think the Fed has to do more than it wants to because liquidity conditions are still quite loose given how low long-term rates are. So long-term rates and the inversion of the curve, I think, will continue to happen. I think 125, sure, why not? Certainly, if you look back into this sort of 80s type of data, you see inversion on the order of 150 basis points, if not a bit more. So it's definitely not a given that you know 75 basis points, 2s, 10s is, is kind of the minimum level. I think there's certainly room For it to invert more, and if it inverts more, then the Fed has to do more. So it sort of becomes a self-reinforcing cycle.
0: Yeah, and you know, I'll tell you, it's it's really interesting. I mean, it's all counterfactual, but we'll never know. It didn't seem to me that that post-emergency QE period, that long period post the GFC, and you know, let's call it out to 2017 or 2016 or so, it did that much to raise inflation. And so you just got to wonder how much success they're going to have combating inflation because some of these are unique. They're uniquely sourced period types of inflation that it's not obvious that higher rates are going to kill it so quickly. So it could be a long haul. It's quite interesting. And Scott, this has been an excellent conversation. I'm really glad we had a chance to do it. I love innovation in markets and especially where you're kind of delivering a very specific type of product. I think RRH fits in that category. So best of luck with, with everything and growing it and congrats on creating Thank you, Dean. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at com. Thanks again, and catch you next time.